Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Interpretive Political and Social Science, a special series on the New Books Network. I'm Nick Cheeseman, an Associate Professor at the Australian National University and host of the series. And today I'm talking with Erica Simmons and Nicholas Rush-Smith about their edited volume, Rethinking Comparison, Innovative Methods for Qualitative Political Inquiry, published in 2021 by Cambridge University Press. Erica is an Associate Professor of Political Science and International Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and Nicholas is an Associate Professor of Political Science at the City University of New York City College campus. Erica, Nick, congratulations on pulling together such a tremendous group of authors for this important new volume, and thanks for joining me to talk about it. Hi, Nick. Thanks so much for having us. Hi, Nick. Thanks, uh, thanks for having us here. Really excited. There are so many books in comparative methods on the market already, aren't there? So why do we need a new one? The book really came from our own research. So when Nick and I were in graduate school together, uh, we found ourselves pursuing projects that didn't fit comfortably into controlled comparative research designs, which is what we had been taught to do for qualitative political inquiry as graduate students. So Nick and I really struggled as we were trying to articulate the logics behind the work that we were pursuing that didn't use controlled comparative designs and thought that we would be well served by a book that encouraged scholars to develop these logics and to spell them out, both to allow more scholars to do this kind of work and to give us better understandings of what the logics might be behind them for scholars who are already doing it. Yeah, I think to add on to some of what Erica is suggesting, some of our favorite books in political science and arguably some of the most influential books in political science and political study more generally don't use control comparative methods, which is the standard method that students are taught. But those books rarely articulate how their comparative logics work. So people can't necessarily utilize them in their own work. So, for example, Benedict Anderson's work has been enormously influential for us in thinking about comparative designs. And of course, he himself actually wrote a book on comparison, but his perhaps most famous work on imagined communities doesn't really say why the comparisons they use to think about in, in radically new ways how nationalism works 
how, the, how it all hangs together. And in conversations with friends, colleagues in political science and in associated fields, they would often come up with really, really creative projects, but would rarely then articulate the comparative logics behind what they were doing. So as a consequence, it became really difficult for other people to do similar kinds of creative work in their own study of politics. And we wanted to encourage people to sit down and have to do the hard thinking, the hard writing of why their comparisons hold up and make sense. What's the problem with that? Can't we just read Anderson and draw our own conclusions about how we might develop or adapt some methods for our own research purposes? Why do we need to be more deliberate in attending to methods and methodologies? I see two real reasons why we need to have this volume and additional volumes we hope that our work will invite. And the first is that we continue to train graduate students in qualitative political inquiry largely focusing on methods of control. Graduate students don't learn much else, right? And so then they don't have the authorization to go on and pursue non-controlled comparative work. So without logics being spelled out, without authors specifically saying, I'm using a non-controlled comparison, this is why it works, this is how it works, this is how I'm advancing knowledge through this non-controlled comparison, you find that graduate students are sort of at a loss to articulate why and how their research designs at this very early stage in their career are in fact also going to advance knowledge. So I think the very first is that having a volume like this helps to authorize people in the field to do this kind of work who aren't necessarily senior scholars, the people who can take these kinds of risks. I think that's a crucial first reason. The second is that we want to expand all of the ways in which we compare. So it's not just sort of establishing that it is okay to do this kind of comparison, but to encourage scholars to really think through what those logics are such that when you're on a, a committee evaluating work, you can say, this is why and how this logic works. This is why and how these kinds of comparisons are advancing what we know about politics. So I think it's it's about both the authorization, but then also about really developing, expanding new modes of inquiry that will hopefully expand how we can think about and study politics. If you think about what graduate training is and is supposed to achieve, it's a disciplinary process in many ways, disciplining individual students on how to think about the study of politics, how to go about the study of politics. One, one example of that is, is the ways in which Mill's methods are taught quite frequently, at least in U.S. graduate political science programs, is, quote, the comparative method. And a little bit of what we're hoping to do in the volume is, to a degree, perhaps undiscipline the discipline or maybe alternatively discipline the discipline by opening up space for students to pursue pursue alternative paths for pursuing the kinds of research questions that they might find interesting, important, but that don't neatly fit into the comparative method understood as controlled research designs. And, and so the volume is an attempt to open up some of that intellectual space and to a degree that political space necessary for students to push the practice of political inquiry further than its, its potentially existing constraints. What are some of the limitations of controlled comparison in qualitative political science that you're alluding to? And, and why is it necessary to draw on Jason Seawright's title in the second chapter to go, as it were, beyond Mill? You know, I think Eric and I try to be clear in the volume that Mill's methods that control comparisons have been incredibly important for advancing how people understand and think about politics in, in vital ways. And so we do not want to get rid of control comparative methods. That's not the goal here. Instead, we want to open up a sort of wider toolbox, if you will, in part because, as I think we both suggested a few minutes ago, 
a lot of really important questions just don't fit neatly into some sort of controlled comparative design. And a lot of the most important work that's out there hasn't necessarily rested upon controlled comparative designs, and yet it's recognized as classic work in, in understanding politics. So we've already mentioned Benedict Anderson's work. You might think of somebody like James Scott's work in Seeing Like a State, which is radically comparative in a lot of different ways. You've got studies of Brasilia, Tanzania, Soviet collectivization that help us illuminate the logics of high modernist politics. But his work, it doesn't rest upon a controlled comparison. The, the challenge is, is that because he's James Scott, he can do a book like that. But but younger students might not be able to, to, for lack of a better term, get away with it, right? And by forcing colleagues to sit down and have to sort of make claims about how they've done their own really very creative work, we hope that it can allow students to have a little bit of that space themselves. Yeah, and just to build on that and speak a little bit more specifically to thinking about some of the challenges with control. In fact, literally today, I met with a graduate student in my office who was struggling with finding case comparisons that fit perfectly for the topic she wanted to study because she couldn't find cases where all the alternative explanations for what she wanted to talk about were controlled for in her mind. And so she was like, do I ditch the topic? What do I do? I really want to study this. But the cases don't line up. I can't find cases where I I think I can really do the kinds of causal inferential work that it seems like the discipline is requiring right now. So to do a controlled comparison well, right, you have to find cases that are independent of one another. You have to assume that the things that you're holding, the things that you're holding constant in in all of your cases, in fact, are the same thing. So things like, say, trying to control for levels of ethnic identification and saying that, say, you want to explain the rise of indigenous parties in Latin America and you want to hold constant the levels of ethnic identification to say that that can't be the explanation, right? You have some countries where there are high levels of identification where you don't get indigenous parties and some levels where the places where there are also high levels where you do. So that clearly can't explain it, right? Because you've held indigenous identification constant when in fact, you know, the way that identification is working on the ground might be really important. And so you can't say that indigenous identification isn't an important part of your explanation for why those parties emerge simply because the levels are the same across two contexts, right? So there are all kinds of challenges with control, often that it's hard to achieve even by the sort of most basic standards in terms of uh, finding cases without even thinking about the ways in which uh, these variables actually work on the ground and and the importance of meaning making around political processes. But then when you do try to take the meaning making around political processes into account, it becomes even more challenging to find cases where you're effectively controlling for, for alternative explanations across them. And so control is really hard to do. And you're precisely right to bring in J.C. Wright's chapter where he shows us that you can't can't even achieve it if you're comparing individuals, right? There are too many different things that are happening in individual lives to create meaningful explanations, even if you think you've controlled for all kinds of things like income and background and education. So we need to think about what other kinds of alternatives might be out there, given how hard it is to adhere to the kinds of requirements that a control comparison puts on us if we are going to put together causal arguments. You know, one of the deeper challenges of studying the political world is that it is often made up of ambiguity, uh, people's individual ambivalences, various forms of contradiction that, that underlay political action, political concepts, political practices. In other words, the political world can and sometimes does lend itself to various forms of causal identification, but quite often it doesn't. And especially for graduate students and junior scholars who are trained to think 
primarily in terms of explaining some outcome, there are a radical variety of questions that get left off the table that are nonetheless crucially important for our ability to understand politics. And so what this book is trying to do is open up space for graduate students to not only compare the world differently, but to ask different kinds of questions than strictly causal ones. I think we have a really good, uh, clear justification for the book at this juncture. So how is it that the book is proposing we rethink comparison? Part of what we're trying to do is rethink the purposes of comparison. So let me just speak to one way in which the book does that. I think a really good example here is a wonderful chapter by Fred Schaefer on different modes of comparison, what he calls juxtapositional and and perspectival comparisons. So juxtapositional comparisons are what you would probably be taught in a a standard intro course in, in graduate school, setting two things that are either relatively similar or relatively different and trying to categorize their similarities and differences. So why are some states wealthy, some states poor? Why uh, does violence exist in one place, but not another? Questions like that. Perspectival comparisons are different. They're comparisons that are premised upon shifting the way in which we see or understand the world. A good example of a perspectival comparison would be something like understanding war as a form of chess or understanding the state as a form of organized crime. These are important ways of shifting how we see these fundamental either political practices or political entities, war-making in the state, that aren't necessarily just about cataloging the differences between these forms of war or that type of state. And so part of what we want to do is, for example, allow students to say, hey, making a conceptual, a perspectival intervention to help us re-see some political phenomena can be an important contribution in its own right. And to give just a very concrete example of this, uh, Tilly's often cited article, war-making and state-making is organized crime. That is taught on huge numbers of syllabi, and its main contribution is not so much the explanatory goals in in the paper, though that is important, is this way of shifting what we think the state does and how it does it. Yeah, I think another way in which the book helps us think about the purposes of comparison is through thinking about concept development. And people talk all the time about how qualitative methods is good at concept development. Well, there are ways in which our comparisons can really help in concept development if we think about them a little bit differently. So Amal Hatoun and Francesca Jensenius have a chapter where they take a very juxtapositional approach to comparison. They compare three countries, Japan, Norway, and the United States. But of course, these are really, really different countries. And so you're not comparing them with this idea of controlling for anything. What they're comparing them to do is to better understand the ways in which concepts of women's empowerment play a role in what kinds of policies are enacted around all kinds of things that affect women in the workplace in terms of Childcare, and they find that understandings of what women's empowerment is, is really different in these three contexts, which then plays a crucial role in how we think about and challenge ourselves to develop this concept of what empowerment is, how it works, and then how it might affect politics more broadly. So there are all kinds of ways in which if we open up the possibilities for the purposes of comparison a little bit more, then we create all kinds of interesting comparisons that we would never have thought to challenge ourselves to think about. So rethinking that sort of the purposes of comparison really is one of these first crucial steps. Part of what is implicit in what Erica is saying about the importance of our concepts for how we see the world and therefore what we're comparing is where our concepts come from within the world. So at least, you know, American political science is dominated by concepts and understandings of history and politics 
from a Euro-American perspective, for um, lack of a better term. It has partially to do with the specific history of the discipline's development, but as a consequence of this rootedness in, in Europe and the United States, we've inherited an awful lot of concepts, an awful lot of commonsensical ideas about how the world operates. But if we shift geographically from where we see the world, and I'm thinking here, Nick, in particular about your own chapter, your own contribution to different areas, different regions in the world, we can start going about the work of rethinking how we see the world. And so part of the work of rethinking the purposes of comparison is also doing the work of rethinking the perspective from which we are seeing the world. The point about concept development is well taken, but where do we go with that? Do, they, do we then say that that is the purpose of the kinds of comparative inquiry and qualitative political scientific research? Or do we then move from that concept development back into work that enables the sort of causal inferential inquiries that um, many researchers would insist are still critically important to the political scientific project? And indeed, it seems to me, as you said at the outset, that you don't want to push against that, but rather expand the terms on which comparative inquiry is conducted. So I, I suppose what I'm trying to get at is then, is this a way to say, all right, having redeveloped concepts, do we then move back into a rather more familiar causal inferential mode of inquiry? Or do we stop there and go on to some other project? Or are we trying to think about uh, causal inferential work in a different way? I think I'd say all of those things. <laughs> I think we'd like to both allow scholars to continue with causal inferential work, say if they find the contribution that Mala and Francesca have made helpful in terms of expanding how we think about what women's empowerment is. So if you want to move on and do causal inferential work from that and you can find a way to take their work and build on it in that direction, absolutely. At the same time, we want work like theirs to stand on its own as being something that makes a crucial contribution to how we think about and see the world, understanding that there are different conceptions of women's empowerment and that they fundamentally change how we go about our daily lives, how we conceive of who we are in the world, how we occupy a space in politics is a really important contribution in and of itself. I think we can also think about the contribution as allowing us to expand how we think about what calls the work is and does in political science. And I think the volume just starts to sort of gesture at this and doesn't fully develop it. But I think it's something that Nick and I are invested in as scholars in terms of saying that causal work doesn't always have to be about very clear causal identifications at each stage, right? That we can talk about conditions of possibility, that we can talk about constitutive relationships in ways that really are causal when we think about them in terms of one thing really does influence, affect, help us to better understand another without necessarily having to understand causality in a way that many of our colleagues who do causal inferential work do. I would agree with Erica that we don't have to sort of throw out the causal inferential baby with the rethinking comparison bathwater. Um, I'm not sure if that. I'm not sure if that holds up. But setting that aside, we'll, uh, we'll conduct a poll afterwards. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. No, but I mean, the, the greater point is, is like the the more rich conceptual understanding that we have of the world and a widened array of thinking about the concepts operating in the world then allows us to think about the causes behind either why we get different, say, conceptual outcomes or, or different empirical outcomes in a much richer way. The challenge, I think, is that 
a lot of emphasis for graduate students is focusing on understanding the causal dynamics of whatever process they want to understand or outcome they want to understand, but a, a lot less attention to the, the sort of terms upon which they're thinking about the thing that they're trying to explain in the first place. So as an example, uh, Sarah Parkinson in the volume very usefully describes some of her process in going about her dissertation field work. And she's trying to understand in her dissertation why one gets different levels of violence in different uh, Palestinian refugee camps in Lebanon. Now, she describes how she set about this work and sort of assumed that she could take the camps themselves as sort of natural units in the world, because in a way, that's how she'd been trained to think that these things existed and this one had high levels of violence, that one had low, and how what explains that difference? The challenge is when she got on the ground, she, she realized that you know, the camps themselves are these deeply artificial things. They are themselves an artifact of any variety of forms of violence. And what she needed to understand was how those processes of violence and the creation of a camp as a violent entity in the first place shaped the subsequent processes of violence. And so a, a less sensitive scholar might have just accepted the apparent naturalness of these camps. And, and Sarah wants to push back against that, and it's to her immense credit that she does so, in part because it ultimately allows, I, I think, a better causal explanation of the dynamics of violence that occurred in these camps. Nick's last, uh, last comment and his uh, discussion of Sarah Parkinson's chapter, I think, brings us to one of the other big contributions that we want to make of the volume, which is rethinking what a case is. And Sarah's chapter does this very nicely in terms of sort of unsettling this idea of camps as already existing natural entities in the world in a way that I think is really important. I was thinking a little bit about how this idea of, of rethinking what a case is is connects to these questions around causality through Thea Rio Francos's chapter, which talks about the ways in which particular sites, so places in the world, are co-constituted by macro processes. And that we can think about that as a causal relationship. It's a causal story. The two are intimately interconnected and helping to co-create each other. It's a different way of thinking about causality. If we think about, say, for in her work, the example of lithium mining in Chile as being part of this macro process that's about resource extraction, that's about global capitalism and how it works, right? And the two work together and we should study them together. So her chapter is about sort of thinking about a single case study where she encourages us to think about particular sites as part of these global processes and that that's a way to think about single cases, not as sort of single cases as being constituted by multiple different observations, which make it in fact created by multiple cases, right? Which is how the field often talks about a single case study is not just a single case study because it's made up of all of these individual different moments or, or things that we can study that, that help to make it uh, more than one case. But in fact, it's more than one case because of the way it's tied to these big global processes. It's not just a way of rethinking a case and what a case is and how we study cases in political science, but it's also a different way to think about causality. And her chapter, she characterizes that method as citing an extension, a reinterpretation, a building on Joe Sosser's casing of a study rather than studying a case. What's Sosser doing with that juxtaposing of that casing of a study versus studying a case? And just to say a little bit more about Rio Francos's chapter then, how is she developing that 
what Joe is doing in his chapter is going back to some of what Nick was talking about a little bit with Sarah's work, which just is to say that so many political scientists sort of begin their projects by thinking cases exist out there in the world, right? They're things that we can identify and look at, and we arrive at our projects, and the cases sort of are already there. And instead, he challenges us to think about the way in which we are actually casing our studies, right? So that throughout the entire process of doing our work, we are creating the cases that we are studying. And this upends how we think about what a case is. It means that you can arrive to your research project, not knowing not just what your case is a case of, because we're all asked that sort of in the beginning of our of our work, right? What is this a case of? But instead to say like, how is this case produced? What about this is a case? So what, what Joe is really doing is helping us see that as we arrive at our studies, we should not arrive thinking that we already know what the cases are, let alone what they are cases of, but that we should imagine them as being imbricated in any number of processes. So for his own work, he arrived at studying welfare institutions and ultimately began to treat them and think about them as cases of political participation. They weren't constituted as cases of political participation as he when he arrived to them. He didn't think about them that way when he first started to study them. And in fact, he had to make the case to any number of people that participation in welfare institutions was actually a process of political participation. And so it opens up a new way of thinking about how we understand what our cases are, that they don't exist already out there in the world, but we in fact produce them as scholars actively through our research process. And one of the points that I think he makes nicely in the chapter that Nick and I have brought up a little bit in this conversation already, but that we want to echo is that he asked this question about, you know, he says, I came from a position of privilege. And so I was authorized to challenge this traditional perspective on what political participation was because I had met this position from which I was working. And is that possible for other scholars? And how do we make that more possible from other scholars who are coming from different positions? And hopefully the book does some of that work by having a chapter that they can cite by Joe Sauce, who says, this is a not just an okay way to approach your cases and to think about your research, but it's one that can be extremely productive and help us better understand the world. And I, I think to kind of build on that, uh, Nick, you asked of what Theoria Francos is doing in, in relationship to Joe. And, and I think what Thea is doing that's, that's so vital and so important is it's, in, and this is also true of Jillian Schwedler's chapter uh, on encompassing comparisons, is both of them are pointing to the importance of paying attention to global processes, or at least trans-country processes. And the ways in which sometimes when we try to explain why country X and country Y are similar or different along some relevant dimension, we lose sight of that inherently global nature of what we might want to study. So in Thea's case, she's trying to understand the political sort of dynamics behind and consequences of the shift to electrification, electric vehicles and things like that. This is a huge global process. You've got uh, lithium being mined in Chile, conferences of, of mining uh, companies happening in Las Vegas, lobbyists in Washington, D.C., pushing representatives, uh, manufacturers in China, Germany, and a number of other countries actually producing end product batteries. Then you face a dilemma of trying to figure out, well, how do you how do you study this global process? And, and what Thea is trying to make a, uh, an argument for 
is it does make sense on a certain level to compare lithium mining in Chile with a conference of battery makers in um, in Las Vegas. Those two things are not comparable, but they're deeply interlinked together. And so if we're going to understand, in this case, the shift to electrification and what its political consequences will be, we have to think about the interrelationship amongst seemingly discrete sites in relationship to this whole global process, even as we're not going to be necessarily comparing discrete site A with discrete site B. While we're not comparing discrete site A and discrete site B in the way that we're sort of taught to as political scientists, through the process of the research, you are always comparing. And so you would be putting that sort of convention in Nevada into conversation with what you're seeing at instruction on the ground in Chile with what you're seeing in D.C. And so you're not comparing in the way that we think about creating a comparative case study in political science. And yet you are engaged in that process because in having all three in conversation with one another, you're learning new things, you're revealing new things, you're understanding new things about each of them individually and about all of them together. Perhaps I should have been more specific that you're not going to compare in a controlled way these two things, but you are going to compare, for example, the extraordinary wealth being generated by electric battery companies, for example, on the one hand, and the environmental destruction being wreaked in various areas in Chile on the other, and putting those into conversation with one another partially via, via the comparison of the, of the differential outcomes in this, in this interconnected global process. So precisely Erica's point, comparison still happening, is just comparison of a different type. Erica, Nick, it's time for a short sponsor's message. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Welcome back to New Books in Interpretive Political and Social Science with me, Nick Cheeseman, in conversation with Erica Simmons and Nicholas Rush-Smith about rethinking comparison. Erica, Nick, before the break, we were talking about rethinking what is compared and rethinking the purposes of comparison. Another dimension of the book is rethinking how comparison is practiced. What's up with that? It's, well, so we were, we were chatting a little bit uh, prior to the break about Theo Rio-Franco's chapter, and, and I want to be clear that part of what's going on in the book, and Theo's chapter is a great example of this, is we're trying to provide students a toolkit about how to go about new forms of comparison. A number of different chapters in the book do this explicitly. Uh, Julian Schwedler's chapter on encompassing comparisons, Jonathan Obert's chapter on complex comparisons, then, then Reed's chapter on different foci in comparisons. There's a lot of actually practical, pragmatic ways for students to think about things. And part of what was important to us was precisely providing not only an abstract discussion of the whys and the whats, but concrete lessons about how to actually go about doing comparison differently. But also, and I think this is really important, to help maybe authorize and and hopefully to a degree encourage students to think about developing new comparative tools of their own and their new research projects. This entire book came out of Erica and I in our individual dissertation 
projects having some difficulties explaining exactly what we were doing, like why our comparisons hung together. And so we had to figure out how to explain it. And I think that that's something that the next generation of students, next generations of scholars can do for themselves. And hopefully this book provides like a, you know, a set of chapters of how about how to, how to go about publishing some of that stuff. I think one of the nice things about this book is that many of the chapters fit in all three of these areas. <laughs> so they, many of them help us rethink the purposes of comparison. Many of them help us rethink what is compared. And many of them help us rethink how comparison is actually practiced. So here, you know, Mala and Francesca's chapter also helps us rethink how comparison is practiced, right? We sort of have conceptual comparison that's going on with them. And I think even our own chapter that looks at comparison with an ethnographic sensibility and really draws on our own work, my work in Latin America and comparing responses to market reforms in Bolivia and Mexico, and Nick's work on vigilantism in South Africa, where we both talk about the ways in which an ethnographic sensibility as a way of thinking about the comparison became critical. Now, to be totally honest, my own research didn't really start that way, right? It wasn't until I got to the field, I had gone to the field with a, you know, perfectly designed controlled comparison where I was going to look at moments of market reforms where there weren't protests and one moment of market reform, there was a big protest and try and hold as much constant within Bolivia as I possibly could. And all of that sort of exploded as things changed on the ground and the field for me and grants got pulled and things went happened in Bolivia such that I wasn't able to study what I wanted to and I had to rethink it. And all of a sudden, given what I knew about what was happening in Bolivia, meaning making around water surged to the top of what was really important. And so then I redesigned a comparison that put meaning making at the center where the ethnographic sensibility that I brought to the work allowed me to sort of rethink what the comparison could be about and how I would structure it so that when I picked another case, I chose it around meaning-making practices that I thought looked similar around very different market reforms in Mexico. There's a lot in the book that sort of allows us to come up with just a few of these different ways in which we say, look, here's another way where you might think about comparing, and here's another one. And our hope is that even though these are just a few chapters, that there are all kinds of different ways of comparing that are out there, and that maybe the book will inspire people to think about what the other possibilities might be. I think we just have a little bit of a taste here. And hopefully there are more and more and more chapters and articles out there that do more of what Ben and, and Mala and Francesca and Thea and Jillian and Nick and I and all of the authors in the book are up to. Nick, could you speak to your contradictions of democracy and on this adoption of an ethnographic sensibility in comparative work? I think in a way this speaks to something of the genesis of the book in the, in the sense that Eric and I were in graduate school together in the same cohort and trained in part by Lisa Wedeen and part by Dan Slater. We, we shared them as, as advisors. And so we had a similar set of experiences in grad school and then also had a similar set of questions emerging out of our respective experiences of fieldwork uh, when, when we came back. And in my case, I was trying to understand, amongst other things, how vigilantism occurred in South Africa. And, and there were a variety of arguments that existed out there in the literature that I selected field sites to ostensibly control for, to help explain away or, or help to eliminate existing explanations in literature, a kind of classic Mills method design, similar to Erica. That when confronted with empirical reality, I saw the ways in which these ostensible control variables still impacted actual practice. So to take one example, 
some uh, scholarship would explain vigilantism as a as this process of um, it, it has a relationship to political parties, political mobilization, political entrepreneurs, those those kinds of things. And I was working in two townships that had very different political structures. And so theoretically, I could eliminate those as explanations. But in practice, I often saw how people who had a political party affiliation of one form or another were involved in these alternative policing practices. And this became then very complicated to, on the one hand, say, this isn't a total explanation. This isn't just about political party competition, but also to try in the actual narratives in the book to sort of account for the ways in which political actors matter quite a bit. And so partially, I think for both Eric and I, the classic training in Mill's methods was very important on the one hand for disciplining our thinking about our projects, but also simultaneously our, our training as ethnographers made us alive to the limitations of these controlled comparisons and the need to bring in things that we thought we could dismiss sitting at our desks in Chicago. And the mentoring we received as graduate students was really key in that process because not only were we trained and when we went into the field by Lisa with her interpretive approach to seeing the world and thinking about it and with ethnography as her core methodological approach to her work, and by Dan, who takes a much more controlled comparative approach to the way that he sees the world. So those were sort of two foundational pillars to how we approach the work. But when we returned home from the field, we were encouraged by both of them to let the project go where it needed to go. Both of them saw value in the questions we were asking and helped us think through the data that we were talking through with them. And I think we both felt free to say what we wanted to say. Both Lisa and Dan saw that we had a real contribution to make, even if it didn't look like we were going to be able to control for alternatives in the way that we had anticipated that we could. And so I think there was something really important for both of us about having mentors who saw the value in the work and encouraged us to go where it took us. We were both extraordinarily lucky to be trained where we were and by the people that we were trained by. But I think one hopeful goal, if you want to say that, we've talked an awful lot about students and, and their ability to sort of say to their advisors, look, Joe Sauce did this, uh, Francesca Molotun did that, this is authorized. Hopefully advisors can pick up on this work too and say, you know what, my student will be able to have a set of tools or there's a moment of political opening in the discipline of political science where they can maybe take a risk or think in ways beyond even how I as an advisor was trained and allow them the space to push the boundaries a little bit. That type of mentorship then calls for a certain amount of risk taking by the mentor themselves yeah. too, right? The, the risk that it goes wrong and then <laughs> the supervisor is blamed for the uh, the outcomes of the supervisees. So it's just a reflection again on what generous people, uh, both Dan Slater and Lisa Within, are with intellectually, but also with their time. And, and I, I gather very judicious with their advice and supportive of projects like yours. Yeah, it's a difficult challenge. We want our graduate students to get jobs. And so there is an enormous amount of anxiety in how we think about advising them. It means that I think all of us as advisors are often more conservative than we would be in our own work, whether we're pre or post tenure, right? We're afraid to authorize them to take those kinds of risks because we really want them to be employed. And we don't want from our position of privilege with a job to be telling them it's okay to go off and do you know whatever it is. So I think we really do hope that the book will empower advisors to feel a little bit better and encourage their graduate students to tackle really big questions even if it doesn't look like there's an easy way to design a case study where they think they can 
do the kinds of causal and inferential work that much of the discipline asks for right now. No, I think that's right. And jobs are tough to come by in the academy these days. Part of our hope is not only to authorize students, authorize advisors, but hopefully help shake up the discipline a little bit to value a, a diverse range of work. There are valuable contributions beyond causal explanations, important though that is, and we don't want to gainsay that to be very clear. Somebody who's making a conceptual intervention, somebody who's making a valuable contribution from the point of view of area studies that has the possibility of enlightening us all. And so I think a little bit of the goal here is to expand the range of work that's legible, to use Jim Scott's phrase. Maybe one cause of anxiety relates to a recurrent theme in the book that we haven't touched on, but it comes out, I think, very nicely in the epilogue with Lisa Wadin, and that's the question of generalizability. Jason Seawright discusses whether or not external validity is necessarily a feature of comparative methods or not. What do you take away from the conversations that you've had with contributors to the volume about how qualitative political scientists might adopt methods? methods towards, if you like, with George and Bennett contingent generalizations or other ways of thinking about generalizability and representativeness that are not those, again, the controlled comparative method. Nick and I had a number of conversations about how the kinds of questions we were asking about comparison challenged us to sort of say, huh, okay, are there different ways in which we should be thinking about generalizability. We're taught that it's the most important thing we do, right? You don't just study a single case, unless you're a single case in the United States, of course, in which case it doesn't really matter. You don't just study a single case. You study a case in order to better understand, to create theory, to better understand other places. And yet the ways in which we're thinking about comparison here push us to think about how should we think about how the insights that we generate travel, and should we be thinking about them differently than we've been taught to? So the volume has absolutely started a conversation first among the two of us, and now among the broader group of scholars in the book. And I think some of the conversation is actually happening in the volume, even if it's a little bit implicit, about what generalization can look like. And one of the ideas that Nick and I have started to develop and play with a little bit in our own work is thinking about whether or not we can talk as political scientists about the idea of translation. And that if we use the idea of translation as a way of thinking about how our work travels and whether or not it's generalizable, it allows for us to see how political processes and practices that we see in one time and place might be similar in other times and places without having to have perfect cognates, right? Without having to see the exact process, the exact connection of causal sequences or the exact sort of array of things that we see happening transfer precisely from one time to another or one place to another, but that they could look a little bit different. And yet we still know they're related, right? It's sort of like taking this idea of family resemblances that Wittgenstein develops and developing it in a way that allows us to to develop a, a, a just a broader approach to how we might talk about generalizability in political science that doesn't require us to elaborate very specific scope conditions and doesn't require that everything look precisely the same in one time and place and in another for us to say that something generalized. Yeah. So I I think to Erica's point, a lot of the conversation is 
is currently implicit in a number of the chapters in the volume. So Nick, I'm thinking, for example, of your own contribution where you discuss un unbound comparison, uh, building off Benedict Anderson's unbound seriality idea. You also talk about translation, as do Eric and I. And implicit also, I think, in Fred Schaefer's chapter on perspectival comparisons, which I've already mentioned, which is that part of what good comparative work can do, we think, instead of just explaining the maximum number of cases can also have us see cases or concepts very differently. I don't think I'd call that generalizability, but I do think it, to, to return to the beginning of our conversation, it is an importantly different, but nonetheless necessary and valuable goal. And I don't think that that's only a property of interpretivist scholars. It's something that positivist scholars could think about doing themselves in their own work. You know, again, a bit of what this book is just trying to do is make people alive to the possibilities of what their work could be doing beyond only causal identification, only causal explanation of the maximum number of cases, i.e. generalizing their work. And I think what the book points to is how much work is left to be done, uh, some of which Eric and I have started, some of which other contributors in volume have started, and some of which we're hoping to continue doing in, in our next iteration, as it were. You say at the start of the book that you intended for scholars of politics, regardless of their epistemological or ontological assumptions. And the listeners of this series know well, there are high stakes in the epistemological choices that we make. So is this, shall we say, ecumenicalism that you put forward in the book and that has certainly featured in the discussion we've just had something that you're both really committed to strongly? Or was it, let's say, a strategic choice for the purposes of getting the book out to as many potential readers as possible? The book is genuinely a commitment to speak to scholars across epistemological and ontological perspectives. It's, that's really important to us. It is not, in fact, a ploy to sell more books, but a reflection of our training. And it comes from having worked with people like Lisa Wedeen and Dan Slater so closely and seen the value that both of them brought to our work. So I think it's not coincidental that Nick and I work together so well and see eye to eye on so many things. And then also that we have a similar vision for what we'd like to do here, because it comes, I think, from both of us having worked with Lisa and Dan and, and really feeling valued by both of them. So we do really aim to have this book and the kind of work we're doing speak to scholars who take a very positivist approach to political science, to scholars who take a very interpretive approach, because we think there are pieces of what we offer about how you think about the world, about the kinds of questions we ask, about how we think about answering those questions that doesn't require that we break down along those kinds of divides. Yeah, I think to Erica's point, at least a couple of the chapters refer to an article by Slater and Ziblatt on control comparisons, where they reference, I believe, what they call the, quote, enduring indispensability of control comparisons. And essentially, we agree with that. We just don't think it's the only way to compare. We absolutely value that kind of work and are committed to this ecumenicalism. It might be dissatisfying, ultimately, to readers on both sides, potentially, on both the sort of positivist divide and on the interpretivist side. But we think, partially, again, because of our training that Erica referenced, that there can be an enormously valuable cross-pollination that can produce new kinds of work. 
And I think this book really is a tremendous success in all of those respects. I get the impression that the collaboration on the project has been incredibly productive, not only for the both of you, but also for the many contributors that you brought into conversation. You've alluded a number of times to next steps in this project. What is it that you're working on together presently and what can we look forward to next? I think we're really hoping to take some of the thinking about and the challenges that came up around how we think about generalizability from the book and take those to the next step. So we really envision having a conversation now that does a little bit of what we tried to do with comparison, but instead about how we think about generalization in political science. And we'd like to bring in some of the same people that were really productive in helping with rethinking comparison, as well as some new people to just ask ourselves this question, what does it mean to generalize in political science? What are the possibilities? How can we sort of sketch out a path towards thinking about different possibilities beyond the kinds of things that are at the center of what we're taught in graduate school and continue to value and produce and reproduce? I think that's exactly right. It's a an implicit question, as we've referenced a couple of times, that's alluded to in different chapters in the book, but there's an awful lot more to work to be done. And so I think that that's our big next step. We're also each uh, working on raising small children. So uh, we are, we're trying to move it forward between <laughs> between those two very important projects. Yes. But, but I think as a collaboration, that's the big next step. And, and we're excited to keep the conversation going, both with people who we've been enormously, enormously privileged to be able to work with up until now, and hopefully some new co-conspirators, as it were, to help us develop new conversations. Working on this project has been the single most valuable and exciting thing I have done as a political scientist. It has been a labor of love, no question, but I have really loved it. And working with Nick has been so rewarding, in part because he's just a wonderful collaborator, but also because I felt like we have really pushed forward a conversation that people are eager for, that it's just exciting and invigorating to think that we are potentially helping to shape future projects in political science. It's felt like such a rewarding experience. It's, it's been amazing to work with Erica as well. She's an unbelievable collaborator, kind, generous, thoughtful, and, and always pushing me to think harder and us to think harder collectively. But it's also been really exciting and really rewarding for both of us to see the generosity of spirit from the contributors to the volume. So this started out as a conference here at, at City College. And what was so striking about it is that folks who ostensibly were on different sides of various methodological divides ended up having an enormous amount in common. Similar questions, similar ideas, just often expressed in very, very different language. And I think that's one of the things that's been most exciting is seeing initially how some enormously intelligent people could engage each other, push one another, and develop exciting ideas. And, and now that we're starting to see students at various fora have access to the ideas, how excited they are to be receiving it. So to Erica's point, this is for me as well, been just the best thing I've done in my career, both getting the chance to work with Erica, but also just to see how wonderful our colleagues have been and how, how much we can improve one another's thinking. Well, it's been a pleasure and a privilege for me to be involved late in the day in the project too. And you've both brought the discussion to a beautiful conclusion. So Erica Simmons and Nicholas Rush-Smith, thank you so much for joining me to discuss Rethinking Comparison. Thank you, Nick, really for having us. Yeah. yeah.
and uh, listeners. This is the 11th episode in the New Books in Interpretive Political and Social Science series to date. You can check out the other episodes in the series with some of the people whose work we've been discussing today, like Lisa Wedeen, James Scott, and Fred Schaefer, as well as the likes of Cecilia Lynch, Diana Kim, Mark Beaver, and Jason Blakely, just to name a few. You could find all of the episodes on our website and stream them wherever you get your podcasts via the New Books in Political Science channel.